We are starting, though, taking a look at something the federal government is doing, putting out a strengthened response to sex crimes in this country, rolling out some legislation that could effectively change who it is that is listed on Canada's National Sex Offender Registry. Joining us to talk a little bit more about how the registry works and what these changes could potentially look like is Sarah Lehman, a lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, so great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Before we take a look at what the federal government is proposing as far as changes to the registry, can you explain a little bit or talk a little bit about how this registry actually works? Sure. So the Sex Offender Registry is a national registry and particular people are required to register on it through court orders. Um, These would be people who are convicted of offenses of a sexual nature And the registry requires them to do a number of different things to ensure their compliance with it, including updating their address, um, updating any uh, changes in terms of their names, things like that, employment, occupation. And it also precludes them from doing particular things like, um, for example, living um, in certain areas where there could be children or vulnerable people present or also holding positions um, of the same nature. And when we talk about who it is that's on the registry, like you said, it's anyone who has been convicted of uh, crimes of a sexual nature. Does it does it break it down, though, or go into the detail on, on what type of crime it is? Or is, is it kind of that, that blanket that label that if it's any crime of a sexual nature, you go on that registry? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. Um, the registry was first put into effect in 2004. Um, and at that time, the court had some discretion about who would be added. So whether or not this was just like a blanket imposition or treated on a case-by-case basis. Um, it was a number of years later, I believe in 2011, when the conservative federal government at that point decided to make some changes to it, um, including mandatory registration for all people who were convicted of more than one sexual offense. Now, it sounds good. But in practice, it led to all kinds of problems. Um, And ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada decided to strike that down, giving discretion back to our courts. Um, So here we are now with the federal government um, of today trying to introduce new changes again in response to that Supreme Court of Canada decision. Uh, interesting. And do you know, and, and if not, uh, not, a, not a big deal, but I'm, I'm curious of the details of that, if, what kinds of problems that it led to having kind of that more, more uh, across the board approach on who was put on that list? Yeah, so it took discretion away from judges in terms of who would be entered onto the list and for what period of time. So the case that was decided by the Supreme Court of Canada provides an excellent illustration of the practical uh, difficulties with that blanket application. So in that case, there was a person who pled guilty to two counts of sexual assault, but they took place during the same transaction. So it happened at a party. Um, This person was 19 years old at the time of the offenses. Um, And there was evidence to suggest, a lot of evidence to suggest, in fact, that he was remorseful, he'd taken responsibility, he was really at no risk of reoffending. But because the law was written in the way that it was, the judge was required to put him on the sexual offender registry for a period of life. 
Now, the Supreme Court of Canada didn't like that, of course, because it, it tended to um, say that, you know, there was no hope of rehabilitation for this individual when, in fact, the evidence showed that there was and that he wasn't at risk of reoffending. And that is um, just one example of um, a case where really this blanket application didn't work and the Supreme Court of Canada uh, recognized that. All right. So looking at the proposed changes that the current federal government has put forward, what types of things could potentially change with this registry? So we're going to see a modernization of the registry if a bill passes. Um, So, for example, we could see new offenses being added to the registry, uh, such as Um, cyber porn types of offenses, um, cyber blackmail uh, with uh, pornographic content. So that's something new. Uh, The other thing that we're going to see um, is uh, where a person is convicted uh, of a sexual offense. Uh, They may be in a position where they have to satisfy the court that they don't pose a risk. So there's going to be potentially a reverse burden of proof onus on offenders to show that they shouldn't be added to the registry. Um, So that is something different because normally it's Crown that bears that burden. Um, And there's also going to be some changes, it seems, to publication bans that uh, can be ordered in the course of these types of proceedings when they are going through the court system. Uh, interesting. So going back to the the fact that it's then it's now going to be the person who is convicted, that they are the ones that would have to demonstrate whether or not they pose a risk to the community. Does that seem a bit odd that that's being taken away from Crown, uh, making that point and, and putting the onus on the person themselves? Well, at first reading, I, I can say that, you know, anytime there's a reverse onus provision, I myself, you know, am not all that comfortable with it as a defense lawyer primarily. Um, but, you know, it is interesting to see this uh, and the way that the Liberal government is proposing to move it forward, because this is a post-conviction um, determination, if you will, right? The person has already been convicted of the offense, and now we have to decide whether or not it's in the public interest to add them to that registry. Um, having them uh, have to satisfy the court uh, is certainly a departure, um, but you know it may not be one that's insurmountable. Um, I guess it's just going to turn on each case and their own individual facts and circumstances of the offender. Right, so it's not something as simple as somebody just saying, oh, I promise I won't do it again, uh, take my word for it, I'm not a risk to the community? Well, I think that the court would have to consider things like, for example, remorse, uh, responsibility. Perhaps we would even consider evidence from um, outside sources like uh, a psychiatrist or doctors. Oftentimes, those types of reports are relied upon for sentencing purposes. Um, so um, they can do risk, um, risk assessments on offenders. Um, so I expect that there would be quite uh, a thorough process. And this wouldn't just be a, I promise I won't do it again. All right. You mentioned publication bans as well. And I found that quite interesting because we've had cases in the past that have been very high profile cases where people have wanted their names out there. They've wanted to speak and be public or family members have wanted to use the names of family members. But so am I correct in saying that in in the way the law is now, it's an automatic publication ban and you as the victim, you actually have to go to the court and ask that I want my name public? Yes, that's correct. And so I think this is a great um, proposal and really one that um, takes into account uh, the true purpose behind 
these publication bans in the first place, which is to protect people who wish to be protected, but not to create a scheme that's so overreaching that every person falls under its ambit, whether they want to or not. So it is going to require judges to make an inquiry as to whether or not the victim has been consulted with respect to ordering publication bans. And if that victim uh, wishes not to have a publication ban, that's something that the court's going to consider in deciding whether to oppose one or not. Right. And that one kind of seems like it would be a simple one enough to change in that I know there have been cases as well where victims have broken the ban by talking about their cases in the media or publicizing it. But I, I can't think of a time, unless I'm just not aware of it, I can't think of a time where a victim have actually, has actually been prosecuted for talking about their case. I'm not aware of anything off the top of my head either, but I know that this is a practical um, issue and it is something that has created a barrier to uh, certain victims in speaking out um, and empowering themselves when that's what they wanted to do, but were prevented from doing so as a result of the ban. All right. And, and Sarah, one other question, because I know this often comes up, the fact that the, the registry is not public, it's police agencies that can access the registry. Do you think that's that's a good idea? Because there, there is always that question of why isn't it public so people can know if there are registered sex offenders living in their neighbourhood? Well, I think that that has to do with making sure that people in the public are protected. And by people, I mean you know, offenders. Um, we don't want to see situations where people are being harassed unduly, um, where people who have been perhaps rehabilitated are unable to reintegrate into society um, because uh, there's stigma attached. Uh, you know, they're not reoffending, they're not posing a risk or any type of uh, danger to uh, their communities, but again, you know, aren't able to move forward from that. I just think that that um, is very unfair and it also flies in the face of many of the principles that our justice system is rooted in, including a rehabilitative aspect for all offenders. All right. Interesting uh, proposed changes uh, to that registry. Sarah, thank you so much, as always, for coming on the show and talking more about this. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we are taking a look at housing and specifically where Vancouver stands when it comes to housing approvals and what the goals look like for the next 10 years. These were all contained in a report that went to council. And joining us to talk more about this is Rebecca Bly, a Vancouver city councillor. Councillor Bly, thanks so much for being here. Oh, hey there, Joe. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of information in this report that Council has looked at. I'm hoping we can start with housing starts. And it looks like there have been a lot of approvals of housing, uh, but some projects are still stalling. I know it talks about the high price of materials and the price of construction. Uh, what do you take from this when you look at the numbers as far as approvals and what's actually being built? It's very good. Um, it, it's a very good question. I mean, Vancouver certainly uh, we are heading in the right direction on housing um, in terms of um, rezonings and and, per, and um, allowing for more uh, of the right type of housing. More rental housing is is clearly the stock, the housing stock that we um, need to increase. The challenge, of course, as you described, is um, housing costs. Uh, construction, sorry, construction costs, um, unpredictable uh, funding um, from senior levels of government as it relates to below market housing. There are many variables after a piece of property um, is rezoned that can then hamper the actual start of construction. 
And how do you see kind of dealing with that or speeding things up? Well, ultimately, I mean, you know, ABC ran on a pre-clear mandate of um, improving permitting to improve um, housing attainability, both affordability and also availability. So we are uh, committed to and continue to work through uh, improving our um, times when it comes to permitting um, and development approvals related to new housing starts. Uh, it's, it's the number one issue that we're focusing on um, to get to what we refer to as 3331 in terms of wait times in our permitting department. And I remember the 3331 from the, the election campaign, but can you, you remind us again what, what the numbers actually stand for? Absolutely. So we're looking at um, aspirational, of course, but we need to start somewhere that is quite aggressive compared to what's happening right now. So three weeks to get a permit on a single family home um, or laneway home or infill development, uh, three months for a low rise multifamily um, development. Um, and um, we are looking at one year for a major development, um, more of a high rise um, housing development. All right. There's a, a slide in the the um, presentation as well, taking a look at when, when you're talking about major developments, and this is the, the rebound, it's called in approvals when it comes to condominiums. It does look like that has come back. There was a big dip, uh, as there was for a lot of housing projects in 2019, but it does look like it that it has come quite, uh, it's, it's rebounded quite a bit. Is that the kind of thing that, that you're looking at as far as where those fast approvals are necessary? Yes, absolutely. And we certainly did see a dip in 2019. Um, but uh, even through COVID, we could see through the data that we are really, uh, we are really round, rebounding back as a, uh, when it comes to um, um, uh, some of the major developments that will enable more units of rental housing. And we see that as a result, of course, of um, you know, very, very aggressive targets when it came to rezonings and public hearings over the last four years. Um, but certainly now a renewed focus in how do we ensure that we are planning for and creating more um, below market and um, market uh, rentals. So definitely trending in the right direction. Of course, we need um, more of every type of housing across the city. And our focus is getting more housing built faster and also um, continuing to partner with the federal and provincial government to ensure that the deepest amount of affordability um, is available in those new developments. There's also a slide that takes a look at homelessness, which is certainly something we have been talking a lot about recently. And this graph looks quite telling in that it looks right across the region of, of Metro Vancouver and the different areas of Vancouver, Surrey, Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, Langley, Newest, Burnaby, Tri-Cities, North Vancouver and Richmond. And it shows that Vancouver has the huge bulk of supportive housing, homeless rent supplements and shelter beds compared to uh, all of the other areas. How can Vancouver continue to do that? Or, or do you need other areas, other parts of Metro Vancouver to start doing more of that? Yes, I think the, the goal here for sure is not for Vancouver to do less, but to work with the pro, um, provincial government to um, take a broader perspective in terms of um, ensuring that, uh, and this is related to uh, supportive housing, 
uh, shelter beds, of course, and also um, rent, rent supplements that can help ensure that somebody doesn't fall into homelessness. Those three um, data points are what's measured in the graph. And, and Vancouver certainly has our, um, I think it's over 9,000 units or, or available beds of all those types of um, uh, um, support services. And um, compared to the rest of the region, is you know hovering around a thousand or even well, well, well below five hundred. So what that shows is we need to continue to work together as a region. We work together so well on many of the uh, issues um, at a regional level, and we have to recognize that homelessness is not a Vancouver-born issue. Um, it is something that's going to require um, every single municipality looking around at, at land and at policies and saying, are we doing enough to ensure that we're, we are building um, a fair share of supportive housing, recognizing that, um, um, you know, the affordability gap, gap is only growing. And most people that are uh, counted in our homelessness, uh, homelessness count in Vancouver year after year cite falling into homelessness before moving into Vancouver. So we, we definitely have a gap. But look, this is not just a regional, metro regional issue. This is not just a provincial issue. Of course, it's a national issue. And the conversation is changing every single day to have a broader um, scope when it comes to solving this crisis. Um, and certainly Vancouver cannot continue to take on so much more um, as it has been over the last 10 years. And we need to balance this out. Right. Because again, looking at this graph, the, the, the line, the bar for Vancouver is is much higher uh, by many, many thousands, by many times compared to, to all of the other places. But when we also then hear about the province bringing in legislation to make sure there are more supportive housing projects built, talking about the one in Kitsilano, uh, does it make a lot of sense given that it, it appears that Vancouver is already doing more than other regions and, and then... The for that project in uh, in Kitsilano, the province is saying, well, you're not doing enough. We're going to make sure this goes ahead. Yes, I mean, that, that project um, itself um, is one of five that was part of an MOU, and that MOU has been fulfilled, and that MOU was signed in 2018. So um, that was that's part of what went into the decision-making there. And also, you know, um, the reality is, um, that project itself is um, is meeting a very um, clear need that we have in the city of Vancouver. I think rather than looking backwards, we have to look forwards and recognize that BC Housing can put in applications just like that, that one and others in the city of Vancouver in other municipalities right across the province to ensure that when people are, you know, in northern BC or, or in the um, southern area um, and across the metro region, that they can find the supports they need in their communities where they're more likely to, if they've fallen um, into hard times, they're more likely to get back on track. They can get the mental health supports, the substance use supports, whatever else they need near their families, near their friends, near their communities, and they have a much greater chance of rehabilitating um, if that is the case. So this is about looking forward and taking this data point and not pointing fingers, but really just looking and seeing what can we learn from this. We can't ignore this data point. We have to help have it help us frame conversations with the province so that we can share the load right across the province. Right. And why is it, though, do you think it's so uh, different or the numbers are so much Vancouver based? I, I mean, is it because of the population or, or because of services that are available, maybe more available in Vancouver as opposed to some of the other places in the region? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a few things. This, the, this 
sort of disparity in, in supportive um, housing numbers was not created overnight. So, of course, it's years and years of um, centralizing um, supportive housing in one particular area. So it's going to take quite some time to balance this out. But I think then naturally those supportive services have um, congregated around where the most um, amount of need is, which is around where these type of housing um, uh, units are, which is in the city of Vancouver. So I think that there is um, a lot to um, unpack there. And um, regardless of... um, of how we start to spread this out over the region and what the province wants to do. I have to acknowledge the province is absolutely leaning into this issue, I'd say, under the uh, Premier EB's leadership for the first time, certainly since I was elected as a city councillor in 2018, really seeing a renewed commitment and leadership around taking on this challenge. But also to recognize we're the biggest city in the region in terms of being a metropolitan urban um, centre. And so we're always going to have more... um, uh, of the of supportive housing units than other cities, so we're we're not looking to sort of like level the playing field entirely. But the reality is, we have four percent of the land base and twenty five percent of the population, and yet we have seventy five percent of the overall supportive housing stock and homelessness shelter beds for the entire region. So that is a not a sustainable um, imbalance, and that's what we're focusing on to bring that back into balance. Right. And, and yeah, you're right. And, and not to finger point at all, but looking at the numbers and we constantly hear about the fact that Surrey is growing so quickly that it could potentially become the biggest city. But again, when you look at the numbers of supportive housing, homeless rent supplements and shelter beds, Surrey is a, a small fraction of what Vancouver has. Uh, yes. That is true. But Surrey is also in North City um, than the city of Vancouver. And I think Surrey is, is definitely has their eye on the ball in this. Um, again, this is about building relationships and um, collaboration across the region. I want to point out that Burnaby, in, over the last year, has um, has has put a focus on uh, opening up more homelessness shelter beds and also supportive housing units and other some other municipalities are doing the same. Again, this is a problem that was solved over decades and decades, really. Um, and I won't go back into Vancouver history, but we know that there was a very transient population way back uh, in the in the 50s and uh, 60s in, in downtown Vancouver. And a lot of that housing stock, hotel stock, turned into supportive uh, single room occupancy, which is what we would categorize as, as supportive housing. So there's a long history there of how this grew. But the reality is, as neighboring municipalities are growing in population, um, they really need to turn their attention as they are. But we really need to do it more so and faster because there's a huge um, homelessness crisis right across the region. And the provinces here to support. So we've got to leverage all of these relationships now and dollars on the table with the federal government to deliver um, these units. All right. Uh, Councillor Rebecca Bly, thanks so much for joining the show and talking more about housing in this report specifically today. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for the interest. We are going to take a little time now to look at a different kind of housing. And this is a report just released by Remax Canada. And taking a look at the transfer of wealth, looking at baby boomers, as well as some other groups, transferring their wealth and what that means for people who are purchasing recreational property. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Elton Ash, Executive Vice President with Remax Canada. Elton, thanks so much for being here. 
Good afternoon, Jill. Great to be with you. Well, it's a, an interesting study because we talk so much about Gen X, uh, the different generations, uh, just trying to get enough together to even purchase their own home or get into the, the housing market in some way. This uh, is interesting, though, looking at how they are being helped out when it comes to recreational properties. So who is buying the most recreational property right now? Well, certainly as we look across the country, Gen X, demographic is having a greater influence than ever before when it comes to recreational property. And as you mentioned earlier, it's really all around succession planning and how their parents or grandparents in the baby boom generation are looking at legacy and the desire to contribute to family, future generations in a great lifestyle. And so that's exactly what we're seeing right now. So Gen X, and, and looking at, so that's people born so kind of mid-60s to early 80s are, are the ones that are kind of in that space so where they're getting some help uh, from uh, maybe the older generation and being able to do that? Exactly. They're in their 40 to 58-year-old age range. And then they're looking to their children, which are now the millennials and Gen Z. And all, every, every demographic here understanding that affordability especially when it comes to recreational property, is a key factor. And how can they help their children, grandchildren enjoy the lifestyle, knowing that to buy it individually will be very difficult in coming years. So if it can be passed on, what a great legacy to provide. I, I guess I found the numbers interesting as well because we talk so much about uh, generations helping their kids out just to get a foot in the housing market and that for their primary home. So it's interesting, I thought, to look at this, that this isn't so much for their primary homes, whether they've already been able to purchase one or maybe they've, they've decided they don't want to, but kind of skipping over that and going right into recreational property. Well, but also, as we've seen in this report, is the blurring of lines now. And the pandemic really accentuated the ability to work remotely. And so many of these recreational properties now have fiber, have internet connectivity into the property. And so there is, especially from the millennial point of view, the thought of, well, maybe my principal residence could be a place at the lake that I might get advantage of from my parents or grandparents. So there's a real... A mixture of, of of goals and objectives here. Right, and that's an interesting point too. You're right because maybe before, if you were your cabin or cottage was three, four hours out of the city, it might be okay for a long weekend, but maybe not for working. Whereas now, if you could work there, then why not? Especially in a hybrid situation, you could be there for you know Friday through Monday, and Friday and Mondays being your your days that you'll you'll do some from the property. Uh, we tend to look at this, uh, the different regions across Canada as well. And I know cottage country in Ontario is is much more kind of well known than I think on the West Coast. But are you seeing that shift as far as the, that kind of being something that the lifestyle that people in BC are looking for as well? Oh, absolutely. And when we look at British Columbia recreational property market, I mean, of course. We think of Euclid, Tofino, Whistler, naturally. But the interior, the Thompson, Okanagan area is very popular with the Shushwap. And, and it's really affected by the Vancouver and the Alberta marketplace as people look for places to escape to.
What's it doing for prices then? Because uh, it would make sense, wouldn't it, that if these are becoming more attractive and people are spending more and more time there, then wouldn't they become pricier? Well, that's exactly the situation. However, given the higher interest rate environment that we've been experiencing over the past eight months and some economic uncertainty, the buyer pool has diminished somewhat, but the inventory pool is also far less than we've experienced over past years. And so the ultimate result is kind of a balanced market. We're not really going to see big price increases in the recreational property market. It'll be somewhere in just under the 1% range from our point of view over this next year. Hmm. And uh, interesting, too. So and what about the different kind of types of uh, recreational property used to kind of uh, the idea you would get, I think, was a bit off the grid, maybe roughing it. A cabin uh, didn't sound uh, like it was super fancy, but it seems like that's changing a bit, too. Well, it has. And if you think about cottage country in in the Muskoka's north of Toronto, uh, a cottage there is a full on residents really and and when we think of off the grid it's more remote but you come to british columbia and whistler naturally uh full four season uh community uh certainly more traditional housing tofino euclid which has been very popular so yeah the whole idea of off the grid although certainly available isn't what's really in demand it's more full service kind of on residential property that is by the lake or very near to it, you know, providing the lifestyle. And you kind of touched on this as well, but it looks like in addition to helping out the Gen Xers with maybe uh, the down payment or money for recreational property, there's also, it seems like there's a a real desire for the boomers or that generation to hold on to these properties and pass them down as well. Certainly is. You know, you look at uh, 74% of the baby boom generation is looking at that own recreational property, are looking at how they can uh, put this property into their succession planning. Even prior to them dying, perhaps they're looking at, well, you know, kind of like a life estate. How can I uh, transfer the property while I'm still alive and take advantage of that planning ahead of time for their children? Hmm. And you touched on this as well, the, um, the what people are looking for. If you want to be near the lake, you want to have access to, to amenities and such. Are there other things that are in that, that must-have that, that maybe people don't often think about, whether it's, I don't know, if it's emergency services, uh, you mentioned internet as well for working. Is that list of must-haves changing as well? Well, certainly, yes. Uh, I mean, waterfront, oceanfront property has always been the most popular and will remain so. But, but actually, access is important to make sure there's more all-weather access into the property, especially if they're looking at it from more of a, a full-time lifestyle orientation where, they'll, where they will work remotely from, and so therefore Internet connectivity and, and the ability to make use of the property that way. Ultimately, full service is also desi- desirable. Uh, the other thing that we've seen over the past couple of years with the pandemic and the move to more rural property is that people are finding now that looking after that property isn't as onerous as many perhaps thought. And so just making sure the services, the, the septic and water wells or lake, you know, lake access water is 
available for them that's been kept up to date and has been maintained for them. All right. Well, it's an interesting report, some very interesting findings in that. Elton, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining the show and talking about it. You're welcome, Jill. Anytime. As you've been hearing on the news, and Mike Smith was talking about this as well, a number of rallies have been held and are being held in B.C. today. Residents saying enough is enough. They are calling on all levels of government, really, to do more when it comes to crime, whether it's property crime, attacks on strangers, and uh, taking advantage of the most vulnerable. And you heard Colin Middleton, who was the president of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association, talking to Mike about some of the issues in that city, saying that there is a housing and an affordability crisis, a mental health and addictions crisis, much like in other areas as well. So that is where one of the rallies was being held today. And we wanted to check in with the mayor of Nanaimo. Leonard Krogh is with us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for taking some time. Good afternoon. I'm always happy to draw attention to the issue of the mental health, addictions, brain injury and trauma crisis in our streets and, and the resultant crime that flows from it. And that's not a rehearsed line. That's just exactly what I feel. Uh, were you at the rally earlier today? Yes. And uh, at, the, at the request of some of my, my citizens, so to speak, I was given an opportunity to say a few words at, at the close of the rally as well. And so what did you tell people who were out? And again, the, the slogan being used is enough is enough. What was your message? My message is, is, is consistent and has been for three and a half years. The government needs to acknowledge that this is a serious problem, that this is the issue on everyone's lips. It needs to announce the funding for the bricks and mortar to build, whether it's housing or institutional care or supportive housing, the money for that. It needs to announce the money for the training uh, for universities and colleges to deliver the training necessary to give the skills that people need to work uh, in supportive housing and or secure institutions, as the case may be, uh, and acknowledge that uh, we it's going to take a while. This is 30, 40 years of failed social and health policy that got us here, and we're not going to get out of it overnight. Uh, we've certainly heard the stories of a well-known business in Nanaimo having the windows smashed several times. Uh, Colin told uh, Mike Smith earlier today that he sees on a regular basis uh, dealers who wait outside medical establishments and then trade or buy prescriptions from people who are very vulnerable. Uh, have you seen these things or have you seen things like this changes in Nanaimo? Look, there's no question these things have happened in Nanaimo as they have in every other community of any size in this province. And indeed, if I believe the media, and I do, across this country, the United States, uh, we have uh, reached the cliche perfect storm We've had, as I say, 30, 40 years of failed social and health policy around the treatment of mental health issues and addiction. Uh, we have layered, layered on an opioid crisis. We have layered on a housing crisis, the stresses of modern life, uh, and this is the result. And uh, the policies that have been employed by governments have not worked. Uh, the resources devoted to it have, no, have not been enough, and we're paying the price for it, and we're paying the price for it here in Nanaimo. It's incredibly frustrating, I must say, not that my feelings matter, uh, for municipal politicians. We do not deliver health care and addiction services. We don't build the housing. We don't do the things that would actually ameliorate the causes and, and the problems. Uh, but we certainly hear it. 
and we get it from our, our, our citizens. Um, the most significant source of emails and communication with me, with council, are all around the issue of the street disorder, and it's a large topic, uh, but it's a, it's it all relates back to that. And uh, you know, the enough is enough rallies um, demonstrate it. Uh, it, and it is extremely frustrating, and it's sad, and it's inhuman. And as Premier Eby himself has said, leaving some of the folks in the street the way we have been is just cruel. Right, and I think anybody can relate to that when you see somebody who clearly is is dealing with a mental health crisis, who is homeless, who likely is dealing with addiction, and that's certainly one of the questions that's often asked: is how is it compassionate? How is it showing any compassion leaving somebody on the street like that? For over three and a half years now, um, I have been calling for secure and voluntary care for a portion of our street population. Now, some will say, well, we have more people confined under the Mental Health Act now or committed during a year than any other time in our history. That may well be true, but with great respect, the people in the streets are not those people. The people who have been confined under the Mental Health Act in large measure have been people with what I, who come from, frankly, often homes, uh, who have a home to go back to after they spend a week or two or three or a month in the psychiatric ward uh, uh, under the under the Mental Health Act. They go back, they carry on with their lives. They are not in the streets taking drugs openly, etc. I mean, look, when I walked down to do an interview this morning, literally a block and a half from City Hall at our, our local radio station, I passed five people next to the overdose uh, prevention site that's operated by Canadian Mental Health right beside City Hall, gathered around, smoking up some form of drugs, looking wasted themselves already within literally a a minute's walk from City Hall. And and what did you do? What can I do? Uh, You know, it's, it's legal to have possession of those amounts of drugs in our community. There's no prohibition against taking drugs openly. Uh, in any citizen, uh, in any community, by any citizen. Uh, you know, as, as I say bluntly, and people are starting to say it, if you walk down the streets of the Nine or Vancouver or Richmond or Prince George with a beer in your hand, you're going to get fined. Uh, if you're smoking a cigarette within a, a few feet of the front door of a public building, you can be fined. But if you are taking drugs that were formerly illegal in a public place, nothing's going to happen to you. And, and it's not that I want you locked up because you're taking drugs, but the fact that we have degenerated into that kind of very public behavior tells you about the seriousness of the street disorder and the misery, the absolute misery of the people who are living in the streets and the misery and stress that they are causing for everybody else around them, in particular their families. Nobody out there, you know, came into the world through a miracle birth. They, they had a mother, a father. They may have siblings. They may have children. Nobody's happy. And certainly some other uh, municipal politicians have been making that point as well. Uh, What you said about if you were walking around with a beer or a glass of wine or something, you would likely get fined, but not uh, doing drugs that that used to be illegal. Uh, Do you blame then decriminalization for, for being part of this problem or has it made the problem worse? I don't blame it for the problem. But the signal it sends, I'm sorry, to the public around street disorder is scary. 
Most of us do not want to see people openly taking drugs that we know are poisonous, that are hurting the, the people who are taking them. Uh, you know, the, the concept of stigma, that's what it's about. It's about the reduction of stigma. The people who would be affected by the stigma of it, with great respect, they're taking their drugs inside their private homes, and that's where they're dying, and that's what the statistics tell us. The people in the streets who are taking their drugs openly, decriminalizing it, didn't make it any better. They're not worried about stigma. They are people who are living deep in misery, deep in their addiction, deep in their mental health issues, deep with brain injury now, so common, probably more than 50% of the cases in the streets. Decriminalization isn't going to do a thing for them. We need a continuum of care. We need detox beds available when people are ready to stop using. We need basic housing for a whole bunch of people. They don't need anything. They're not suffering from addiction or mental health. We need supportive housing, and we need, as I've said over and over again, for the severe cases, Secure care, secure involuntary care. Um, and I know that that sets on fire the hair of a number of people around civil liberties and some folks who are delivering the services and have been for decades dealing with the, what I will call the, the street population who are suffering. Uh, and so be it. I, I'm prepared to take that flack because I am not prepared as a citizen in a civilized 21st century democracy to continue to see this kind of human misery when we know it can be dealt with and we know what the solutions are and they're not going to be easy and they're not going to be cheap and they're going to have to be expensive and extensive, as I've said many times. But for heaven's sakes, let's get on with it. Either we're a civilized society or we're not, but we cannot let this continue because you'll see other acts of vigilantism like we're committed by an individual in our community who's literally packing the lead that was shot into him uh, by the person he was uh, going after to get his stolen property back from. Uh, this is not the way we should be living. No. I'm sorry for the rant, but yeah. as you can understand, when you spend so much of your day dealing with this, something that municipal politicians don't have control over that we can't fix, and we're stuck with increasing our policing costs and community safety officers, it gets a little bit frustrating. So you know what? As the rally says, enough is enough. The good news is I think this government is listening. I think the federal government is waking up to this. I was uh, talking to a senator the other day who's been making the pitch in Ottawa. Um, so I am I'm hopeful. I'm never without optimism, but we need the signal that senior governments get it and that this, in my view, will be a one of the two main vote-determining issues in the next provincial election, for sure. Well, no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and also your comment on involuntary care, something that the Premier uh, floated, uh, has floated a few times. And like you said, it uh, it does often get that response uh, that, that people are very opposed to it. Uh, but you kind of answered this, but how confident are you that, that can, there can be a discussion about that or that we might see things change there? Look, the reason I'm confident about bringing it up and the reason I'm not afraid to say it and say it over and over again, as I have done for three and a half years, is because my email response, my response in the streets is overwhelmingly positive. That comes from people who have been impacted by it, people who have family members, people who've seen the results of, of the work that can be done in an institutional setting or a, care, a proper care facility, whether they're workers, retired doctors, psychiatrists, whatever. The only people who don't seem to get it are a small, vocal, and it would appear over the last few years, influential minority of the population. And I'm sorry, but what they are 
arguing for and the fears they have may have been the right approach 50, 60 years ago when we know that people were sterilized in institutional settings, we know there was abuse. You know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest became the, the, the vision everybody had of institutional care. It doesn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way, and it won't be that way in, a, in, in the present day if we do the right thing, and I believe we're capable of doing it. So for heaven's sakes, get on with it. All right, Mayor Krogh, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. And much appreciate you bringing attention to this ongoing issue. I really do. Thank you.